You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is In the Stream of Time, Episode 4, with Walter Feit. Today we're going to speak about the two allies, the beast and its image. And uh, in the last lecture we looked at the Reformers' view of the Antichrist. We studied the little horn power of Daniel chapter 7. And now we're going to pick it up in Revelation chapter 13 and expand it because prophecy is designed that way. One prophecy builds upon a previous prophecy. And if you want the final picture and more and more information, then you need to study them all. And without the basics, you will not understand the later ones. So let's have a look at this prophecy. Revelation chapter 13. We're going to go through the whole of chapter 13, verse by verse. And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea. Now we've looked at some of these symbols already. And in Daniel we have the definition of a beast. The beast is a kingdom. So he saw a kingdom rise up out of the sea. And the book of Revelation gives us the answer and tells us the waters which you saw are peoples and multitudes and nations and kings, languages. So it's the kingdoms of the world. And I stood upon the sands of the sea of the nations and I saw a beast, a kingdom, rise out of the nations having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns. And upon his head the name of blasphemy. Now we picked up that little word blasphemy when we studied Daniel chapter 7. Which component of Daniel chapter 7 was the blasphemous component? It was the little horn power. The little horn power. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard... And his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Now, these creatures all sound very familiar, don't they? So, let's have a look at an artist's rendition of this beast. He has the head of a lion. There are ten horns on his head, and on the horns there are crowns. Then he has the body of a leopard, and he has the feet of a bear. Now the only place we find all of these creatures is in Daniel chapter 7, because there the powers are described as the lion with eagle wings representing Babylon, and then there was the bear, we have the bear component here, which represented the Medes and the Persians. Remember, it was raised up on one side. And then we have the body of a leopard. That was the four-winged leopard that represented Greece that was divided after Alexander's time into four separate entities. And then it had the ten horns, which represented the power that came out of Rome, so it's the divided Roman Empire. So all of these components are present in this creature. So you have Babylon, you have Medo-Persia, you have Greece, and you have Rome. 
and there are crowns on the horns. So this is a stage where this beast is exercising authority because there's a crown on the horns. So it's a conglomerate beast. But upon the whole beast, there is blasphemy. Now let's see what the reformers made of this. Now this is Wesley's comment regarding this beast. And he says it quite bluntly. This beast is the Romish papacy. As it came to a point 600 years since, stands now and will for some time longer. To this and no other power on earth agrees the whole text. And every part of it in every point, as we may see with the utmost evidence from the propositions following. This beast is a spiritually secular power. Opposite to the kingdom of Christ, the power not merely spiritual or ecclesiastical, not merely secular or political, but a mixture of both. The beast has a strict connection with the city of Rome. So this is what the reformers believed. They saw all the components of Daniel chapter 7, and they find them in this beast, and then there are a number of pointers which tell us that the characteristics of the entire beast are very similar to that of the little horn. In fact, they are identical. One of them we've already had is a blasphemous power. So let's continue. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death. Now it doesn't say it was wounded to death. It says, as it were, wounded to death. Some translations say it, one of the heads seemed to have a mortal wound. So there's a difference. And his deadly wound was healed and all the world wandered after the beast. And that wandered is with an O and not with an A. They didn't walk after the beast. This is a cognitive function. They wandered after the beast. So they had the same mindset as the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. Now this is quite a profound statement. So they worshipped the dragon, obviously unknowingly, because the dragon gives this power, his power to this beast, and it's a counterfeit system. And the world is beginning to think like this beast and to follow it in its mindset. And they worship the beast, saying, who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? So obviously he's powerful. He's not easy to overcome. And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. This reminds us of the little horn power, which did the same. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. Now you will remember that the little horn power ruled for three and a half years. Now in the Hebrew, the year had 360 days and the month had 30 days. So if you multiply three and a half by 30 to get the number of days, you get to 1,260. And if you take 42 months of 30 days and you multiply that out, you also get to 1,260. So it's the same time period. So it's the same attributes. He's blasphemous. He has the same time period. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. 
So what is blasphemy? We need to make sure again, as we did when we looked at the little horn. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4, remember the reformers said that Paul, in describing the man of sin, was describing the exact same power that Daniel was describing when he described the little horn power. And we looked at all the parallels. Who opposes and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And the reformers claimed that all the parallel Bible texts show that the temple is the church. Because Paul, writing to the Ephesians, said, you are the temple of the living God. So here's this power sitting in Christianity. So it's a Christian power. Now, does the Pope claim to have this divine power? Well, he does. Ferraris Ecclesiastical Dictionary, the Pope is of so great dignity and so exalted that he is not a mere man, but as it were, God and the vicar of God. And Cardinal Bellamine says, all the names which in scriptures are applied to Christ, by virtue of which it is established that he is over the church, all the same names are applied to the Pope. So he takes all the titles of Christ. Now the word anti also means in the place of. So if someone takes the place of Jesus Christ, he is anti-Christos, anti-Christ. And then he claims infallibility. This is an attribute which belongs to God alone. This is Pope Pius IX, 1846 to 1878, during whose pontificate the doctrine of papal infallibility was dogmatically defined by the First Vatican Council. Now this is quite incredible that they defined it so late, because in practice it had been in vogue and in use throughout their existence. In fact, it came very early on in the first centuries after Christ that they assumed the power of infallibility. So papal infallibility is a dogma of the Catholic Church that states that in virtue of the promise of Jesus to Peter, the Pope is preserved from the possibility of error. When in the exercise of his office, this is official quote from Rome, as a shepherd and teacher of all Christians, in virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, he defines a doctrine concerning faith or morals to be held by the whole church. So he is infallible, he cannot make a mistake. It cannot even happen that in his thinking along these lines, he makes a mistake according to the doctrine. So this is an attribute that belongs to God alone, that he implies to himself. And then Revelation 13 verse 5 says, And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. So you have this specific time period, which we've already analyzed. Forty-two months, the Hebrew month, thirty days, thirty times forty-two, one thousand two hundred and sixty days. And the reformers all said, in one accord, that the day-year principle has to apply to prophecy. Otherwise, the other prophecies in the Bible don't work out. If you don't apply it to, to the one, if, to this one, then you'd have to ignore it for the others as well, then none of the prophecies work out. But all the prophecies concerning Christ 
have to use the day year principle to apply. Ezekiel 4 verse 6, I've given you a day for a year, so there is a biblical injunction for doing this. Now if we look at the history, Viglius ascended the papal chair in 538 AD. That's when the Ostrogoths finally were eradicated, one of the three horns that were eradicated, under the military protection of Belisarius. So these are the, the soldiers and the army of the emperor in the east that enabled him to take the throne because his opposition had been removed. This is just history. So we have a starting date for this prophecy. So the legally recognized supremacy of the Pope began in 538 AD when there went into effect a decree of Emperor Justinian making the Bishop of Rome head over all the churches, the definer of doctrine and the corrector of heretics. So let's add 1,260 years to 538. Well, then we get to 1798. What happened then? Revelation 13 verse 3 says, And I saw one of his heads as if it were wounded to death. As if it were wounded to death. So here was a wound. Now a beast is a kingdom. It's a political entity. So if it receives a mortal wound, that means the political power must be removed from it. So in 1798, what happened? Berthier, the French general under Napoleon, made his entrance into Rome, abolishing the papal government and establishing a secular one. So here, the political power of Rome came to an end. So the beast received a mortal wound. Unless it was a ruse and it just had to appear as if it had a mortal wound. That's another lecture in itself. For today, it received a mortal wound. And now it gives us some details about what the beast's activities were. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints. So it's a persecuting power. And to overcome them. So he would be victorious in what he was doing. And power was given, given him over all kindred tongues and nations. So prophetically, the prophet sees in vision that this power will eventually have power over the entire world. Now, was Rome a persecuting power? Papal Rome. The answer is yes. The Inquisition is history. Everybody knows about it. With torture chambers and uh, sentencing to death by the, at the stake, live burnings, stranglings, every single means was carried out to persecute the saints from the time of the early Christians right through until after the mortal wound. The Inquisition in Rome was still alive after 1798 and it was run there by the Jesuits. And they were persecuted for heresy. Now heresy means choice, the Greek heresis, deciding for oneself what one shall believe and practice. Because Rome claimed infallibility, so if they defined a doctrine and you refused to believe it, well then you were a heretic and you were sentenced to death. And I saw one of the heads as it were wounded to death, and then this amazing statement, his deadly wound was healed. 
In other words, if it, a beast is a political entity and he loses his political power, then the beast is dead. What will it take to heal and to be alive again? He must get his political power back. Now this didn't affect his church power because it was also ecclesiastical power, but the symbol in the Bible for that is a woman and not a beast. A beast is a political entity. So the beast, the political side of this power, received a deadly wound, and the deadly wound was healed. So he lost his power under Berthier, under the Napoleon power. Italy was made a secular state. All the papal states were taken away. It was only a church. And then he would receive it back. And then, only then, would all the world receive the mindset, wonder after the beast. So only after the healing of the wound. Now it's fascinating when you go back into history and you look at the Assyrian kingdoms, the ancient Assyrian kingdoms, they had this very symbolism. So the Bible draws from known symbolism which Satan had already counterfeited knowing how God works because even in the Old Testament we read about Leviathan, the seven-headed monster. And here the god, or the precursor of the god Marduk, is wounding one of the heads of the seven-headed beast. So the symbols that are used in the Bible, like the lion with eagle wings, these were known to the people of the time. So Daniel would have understood what this actually means. So it's fascinating that we can pick up this symbolism in the archaeology. Well, what happened and how did Rome get its power back? Well, it happened in 1929. The Rome question tonight was a thing of the past. And the Vatican was at peace with Italy in affixing the autographs to the memorable document Healing the Wound. Extreme cordiality was displayed on both sides. So claimed the San Francisco Chronicle. So they even used the word healing the wound. So in 1929, there's the San Francisco Chronicle with the headlines, Mussolini and Gaspari sign historic Roman pact, healing the wound. Here they are seen signing it. The Vatican received its political power back. And the smallest state in the world was born with the Vatican state, an independent sovereign nation with political power was born. So the wound was healed, politically. And power was given him over all kindreds, tongues, and nations. That's quite an astounding prophecy. So this church that appeared to be politically done for would rise again and would control the entire world. Now this is where this little word seem to have a mortal wound comes in. Because what really happened in history is that when the political power for all intents and purposes was removed to the eye of the beholder, they went underground. And through their secret societies and their manipulations through the Knights of Malta and through all their organizations, the Franciscans and the Jesuits and all of these, they expanded their power into every nation on earth without anyone knowing how it was done. It was a brilliant move.
This is the funeral of Pope John Paul II. This is the first time that the mega media was involved in such an event and where the broadcast went to the entire world. And more people witnessed this than had ever before in history witnessed an event on earth. And uh, the Pope lay there on his specially designed coffin and millions of people watched it on television. And the media said the Pope was the only one to be a world evangelist. He could visit all faiths, Islam and Judaism. He prepared the way for a religious new world order. And we don't have time to show all the photographs and the activities of the papacy, how from shamanism to Hinduism to Voodooism, how he embraced all religions and gathered them together under his influence. And the BBC, to claim that he prepared the way for a religious new world order, is quite fascinating. So this is a power-mongering of Rome. On Larry King Live, after the Pope John Paul's death, Billy Graham, who was the then-time leader, as it were, of the Protestant world, claimed that the Pope was the moral leader of the world. So even the ecclesiastical wound that it received during the Reformation seems to have been healed. At the funeral, whoever was prominent in the world was there. Whether he came from the far right or whether he came from the far left, they were there whether they came from supposed pro-religious ideologies to anti-religious ideologies, they were there. Margaret Thatcher being from the right spectrum, Fidel Castro being from the left spectrum, and if your marriage date was set for the funeral date, well, even if you were a prince, you had to change your date of marriage. So this is a very prominent thing. So everybody who was a politician was there and the living presidents of the United States lined up and even knelt at the casket, something that is unheard of because it was against the American Constitution of separation of church and state. And Newsweek at that stage claimed under John Paul II, who helped bring down the Iron Curtain, the Holy See gained more political clout than it had enjoyed since the Renaissance. So I think the prophet looked ahead and he saw this power putting its tentacles into every nation, tribe, and tongue on the planet. If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. So now we're at a point where the Bible says, do you know who this beast is? Do you know why he looks like he looks? And if we analyze it a little bit further, we see that this is a conglomerate beast of Daniel. Now Daniel, if we look at the animals in Daniel, then we'll see that the lion had how many heads? One. And the bear had how many heads? One. So now we've got two heads. And then comes the leopard beast. How many does he have? Four. 
So we've got six. And the final terrible beast has how many heads? One. That's seven heads. So there are seven heads in Daniel chapter 7. And this beast in Revelation 13 has seven heads. How many horns were there in Daniel? Ten. This beast has ten horns. The crowns are on the horns. So this is a conglomerate beast. But the attributes are all the attributes of the little horn. So it must be the little horn. Then why does it have all the attributes of all the other beasts? The answer is simply this. That those political kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece and Rome, all ceased to be world powers. They disappeared off the stage of history as world powers. But their ideology did not disappear. So the Babylonian ideology of mother and child worship didn't disappear. The deities that were worshipped, the many deities that you can consult, they didn't disappear. And then the Medo-Persians, they had a totally different structure which they added to the religious system where they built the Mitraya, the little groupings, and you could belong to different groups of people with different activities within the religious orders. And if you received a congregation, then you were called father. Now Rome took over the structure of the Medo-Persian system for its church organization. So you have different orders with different goals and different ideologies. You have the Franciscans, the Dominicans, uh, the Augustinians, the Jesuits, etc., etc. Each one concentrating on something different, but each one having churches under their control and being called father of the various congregations. So the organization is like the Roman Mitraeus because when the Romans took over the Medo-Persian religion, they incorporated Mitraism and the elite, the leaders in Rome, were Mitraics, like um, Constantine was a worshipper of Mitra. And then, that represents, of course, the feet of the bear. That's what it stands on. That's its organization. But it also has a philosophy. This beast has a philosophy, and it's not a biblical philosophy. It's a Greek philosophy. And so we find that uh, they have a philosophy, for example, of natural law as the basis for determining what is right and wrong. And that is a Greek philosophy. And how they see the state of the dead and how they incorporate all of these issues and how they believe in rationalism over above um, divine revelation is all based on Greek philosophy. So the body of the beast is Greek. And then, of course, its legal system and its rulership power is Roman. It's, after all, called the Roman Catholic Church. And in the Middle Ages, it ruled the nations of Europe. Therefore, the crowns were on the horns. So this is a conglomerate beast where the Roman Catholic system has incorporated all the ideologies. So it's the only system that exists today that consists of the lion, the bear, the leopard, and the ten horns. 
all in one organization, all the best ideologies. And when it received the mortal wound in 1798 and ceased to exist for a while, at least for the public eye, then the scripture says he went into captivity. And the Pope actually literally went into captivity. He that killeth with the sword, Rome killed with a sword, must be killed with a sword. So the beast received a mortal wound and it died. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Now it takes patience because this is not the end. Now it gets interesting. So in 1798, this system received a mortal wound. The papal states were taken away. The Pope was taken captive and he was exiled from Rome. Mortal wound. We have a date for that verse. It's 1798. So the prophet sees the one beast entity going into captivity. And then he turns around and he sees another beast. And he describes it. And I saw another beast. Now we know what a beast is. A beast is a political entity. Coming up out of the earth. Now the first one came up out of the sea. Now the sea is the peoples, the nations, the multitudes, the kingdoms of the world. This one doesn't come up out of the sea, so it must be in an area where there are not political entities, political structures. doesn't mean there are no people, it means there's no political structures. And it had two horns, like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. Now we know that the first horn spoke like a dragon, but this horn, this beast, had lamb-like principles, but he would speak like a dragon. So it's another kingdom which arises when the first one goes into captivity. Now, who could this be? Well, John Wesley, again, I love to refer to the Reformers, in his notes on Revelation chapter 13, and these were written in 1754, says of the two-horned beast, he's not yet come though he cannot be far off, for he is to appear at the end of the 42 months of the first beast. Now Wesley already told us who the first beast was, so he knew that it was the papacy. And now, in 1754, he's seeing that this time period is running out and he's wondering, where's the second beast? It should make its appearance. Well, it did make its appearance. And... Uh, there's a reason why we use the buffalo here as a symbol. Let's have a look at the rise of the United States. 1776, there was the Declaration of Independence. That doesn't mean independence was accepted by the world. In 1783, most of the nations of the world acknowledged the independence of the United States, but not the superpower of the world at that stage. There was France. 1787, Constitution is framed. You only really become a political entity once you have a Constitution. 1791, the Bill of Rights was added. And in 1798, France recognized the independence of the United States. Now this is fascinating. This is beyond coincidence. Because France is the very nation that gave the first beast its mortal wound. And it is the very nation that recognizes the second beast. 
and then sends a gift, the Statue of Liberty, which is a statue of Mitra, Mitraism, to New York. And it's interesting that New York, the island where it stands, Manhattan, falls under maritime law. So it's actually an entity within itself. That's another lecture. 1863 Slave Emancipation Act. So they are lamb-like principles. And of course the Bible refers to the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. So this must be another Christian nation. And this Christian nation has lamb-like principles but will speak like a dragon. Now if I want to know how a dragon speaks, I have to ask the first beast. Because the dragon gave the first beast its power. So he spoke like a dragon, verse 11, and I'd like to ask the first beast, can you explain to me how a dragon sounds? Well, let's ask the first beast. The state has not the right to leave every man free to embrace whatever religion he shall deem true. The church has the right to require that the Catholic religion shall be the religion of the state to the exclusion of all others. So that's beast language. Freedom of conscience taken away. Now you will say, but, but Rome doesn't require that today. You can be whatever you want to be. Yes, provided you're in the ecumenical movement. And provided you acknowledge the supreme authority of the Bishop of Rome. What if you do not do that? If you don't fall under that ambit of protection and inclusion, would this perhaps apply then? Could anyone that does not acknowledge this authority be excluded? Could the United States become prescriptive in terms of what you may or may not believe? Cursed be those who assert liberty of conscience and of worship and in such that maintain that the church may not employ force. This is the syllabus of Pope Pius. 1864. Well, this is the language of the first beast, contrary to the lamb-like constitution of the second beast, the United States of America. The Roman Catholic Church must demand the right to freedom for herself alone. La Civilta Catolica is the official Jesuit publication, so obviously that is what they believe. The Roman Catholic is to wield his vote for the purpose of securing Catholic ascendancy in this country, Catholic world. So that's beast language. That's dragon language. Now it's unthinkable that the second beast, with its lamb-like principles, would eventually speak like a dragon. So let's see how this unfolds. Verse 12. And it, the second beast, exercises all the authority of the first beast before him. That's an interesting statement. So he's exercising his authority on behalf of the first beast in the presence of the first beast and causes the earth and those that dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Now, how does a nation do that? How does it force someone to worship the first beast? Well, the Bible is quite clear. The Bible says if you obey someone, then you are subject to that someone. So if you are subject to God then you obey God. If you are subject to this system, the other system, then you obey that system. So 
Well, by definition, then you're either worshipping the one or the other. How could you do that? Well, by legislation. What if you made a law which honoured the first beast but was contrary to scripture and everybody obeyed the law, then they would be worshipping the first beast and they would not be worshipping the God of the Bible. So how will this pan out? And it does great wonders so that it makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men and it deceives those dwelling on earth because of the miracles which were given to it to do before the beast. Huh, all right. So how does it deceive everyone into believing that it is right? Well, fire from heaven. Now some people claim that this is the atomic nuclear power of the United States, but I certainly don't believe that because with this fire it deceives everyone and an atomic bomb has never deceived anybody, it only killed them. <laughs> so this must be another fire and it must be a deceptive fire, alright? Okay, so what fire can come down from heaven that would be a deceptive fire that would deceive those dwelling on the earth because of miracles? What kind of religion comes out of the United States of America and is beamed across the world? Isn't it a power religion that is beamed across the world? Isn't it a religion of prosperity, gospel? Isn't it a religion of miraculous healings? And people in their millions follow and believe this is an outpouring of the Spirit of God. And once the people have confidence in this religious system, they are prepared to follow it. And then the beast will say the following, saying to those dwelling on the earth that they should make an image to the beast who had the wound by the sword and live. Fascinating verse. So you have to make an image to the first beast. Now an image is something that looks like the original. If I stand in front of a mirror, what do I see? I see an image of myself. So if the second beast must become an image of the first beast, then it must become like the first beast. Now what was the first beast? The first beast had crowns upon the horns. In other words, the ecclesia, which because it's a religious system, was ruling the powers, the horns, the divisions of the Roman Empire. It was ruling by ecclesiastical decree. So, this second beast, if it emulates the first beast in structure and becomes an image, must do likewise. It must become prescriptive in terms of its theology, and it must force the world to accept the, this theology, whatever it is that they propagate, and it must be a theology which belongs to Rome, to the first beast. Only then can they force everyone to make an image of the beast. In other words, allowing the church to dictate to the state. That's what happened in the first beast. Church and state united, fighting 
against God's people. In the end, church and state united, worshipping the first beast, and therefore they will persecute those who honor God rather than the system. Let's see how it works out. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast. And the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. So this power, this religio-political power, will become prescriptive in terms of what you may believe. And if you refuse to go along with that, you will be destroyed. You will be destroyed. You will be killed. Now my question is, is there religious turmoil in the world today, yes or no? Absolutely, there's religious turmoil. Are the battle lines being drawn as to what is acceptable religion and what is not? Yes, the battle lines are being drawn. So it's quite probable that the beast will at some stage say, so far and no further. If you have ideologies which clash with the mainline thinking, then you will come up against the force of the state. Is that a possibility? Now it's interesting that in 2011, Washington and Rome became sister cities. Chao Americana says, even the architecture of the two is very similar and it's not by chance, it's by design. Interesting observation as they signed the sister city agreement. So even in its architecture, it seems as if the one is an image of the other. And, uh, well, we'll see how interesting this can actually become. So an image would be church and state working in unison. That's something that is not enshrined in the Constitution of the United States, which is a lamb-like constitution. Therefore, things must change so that it can become a constitution similar to that of the first beast. Does the church have any dealings with politics in America? Yes or no? Well, here is the previous cardinal of New York, who is the head of the Knights of Malta in the United States. And he's also always the military patron. And whenever uh, the politicians get together, they have to appear before the cardinal of New York. So whether you are representing the right, as in the case of McCain here, or whether you're representing the left, it makes no difference. You're just sitting either on the right-hand side or on the left-hand side of the Cardinal of New York. This is the military order of the Knights of Malta that actually controls what happens behind the scene. And in the previous lecture we saw that the Knights of Malta formed the CIA and the FBI and all the top politicians belong uh, to this organization in some way or another. And they all have to smile very happily. Now Cardinal Egan has passed away and so the next cardinal will take over. What's interesting is that 
Every single president that has ever ruled in the United States has always been related to the previous one in some way because they all come from one family. Now that's a very interesting point. They all come from a royal family. And if they all belong to one family, George Bush and uh, Obama are cousins, and even McCain and the president today are cousins far removed, but all from the same family, Obama through his mother. Interesting point of view. Now here's the new cardinal after Cardinal Egan passed away, Cardinal Timothy Dolan and the politicians. He's the one that also led the gay pride rally uh, as one of his first official acts. And here he is seen again with the politicians. And fascinatingly enough, you will see again, it is the representation of both parties sitting on either side. He seems to have something very important to say. He can be in a jovial mood or in a pensive mood, it seems, but you have to sit by his side. These are interesting signal pictures. The church is not divorced from the state in the United States of America. It's time for Protestants to go to the shepherd, the Pope, and to say, what do we have to do to come home, said Robert Schuller in 1987. And he was a 33-degree Freemason. And then, of course, in 2014, all the evangelicals were represented when they visited Pope Francis. And Kenneth Copeland was one of the leading figures. Tony Palmer, who was still alive at that stage, and has since um, had a serious accident which caused his death, they all came together to shake hands and to say, we have to come back home. Rick Warren came a little later, and he's America's first pastor. He's the one who did the inaugural prayer at Obama's inauguration. He said the first reformation was about belief. This one is going to be about behavior. Uh, the first one was about the creeds. This one's going to be about our deeds. The first one divided the church. This time it will unify the church. So the wound is healing also ecclesiastically. The divisions that occurred amongst the Christian uh, denominations will disappear in this grand ecumenical movement. So megachurch pastor Rick Warren joins Pope Francis in support of a common mission. Rick, pastor Rick Warren has called on non-Catholic Christians to join with Pope Francis and the Catholic Church in pursuit of their common goals. So the wound is healing not only politically but also ecclesiastically. Up close, you can feel the humility and the compassion that others see from afar. So, the world is coming together. Verse 13 and 14, And it does great wonders, so that it makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And this fire is deceptive. And because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the of the earth. So they believed that God was in this movement of church and state all joining together because they saw this outpouring. But the Bible calls it the deceptive outpouring. 
And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. So this is a serious issue. We must look at it very carefully because there will be a death decree. Now, let's have a look at uh, a little bit of typology. When we go back to the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar made an image. And he made it of pure gold because he defied the God of heaven who said that his kingdom would be replaced by another and by another and by another. And he said, no, his kingdom would not disappear and everybody has to worship him and not listen to what the God of heaven had to say. So that was a similar situation on a small scale. And then the three friends of Daniel were thrown in the fiery furnace because they refused to bow down to the image. And the interesting thing is that when Nebuchadnezzar looked, he saw a fourth man in the fire, one who looked like the Son of God. And when he called them out, there was not the smell of fire upon them because God had protected them. This is a type of what will happen at the end to those who refuse to bow down to the image of the beast. When the odds are against them, when the hands of the law already grab them, when they are ready to throw them into the fire and to annihilate them, God will intervene. This is a promise in typology, so that none should be afraid. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their forehead. And no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now here's another mouthful that we have to unravel. So everybody of every class, rich or poor, will have to receive a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. Now modern theology, which is a deceptive theology, tells us that this will be a barcode or similar which will be necessary for you to access your bank account. The question of course is, is God concerned about the way in which you access your bank account? Because currently we use a credit card with a code on it to access a bank account. Now if that were stamped on the hand, would God then uh, deem you unfit for heaven. What is the difference? So is this a literal mark or is it not? We have to look at the context. That no mind might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that has understanding count the number of the beast for it is the number of a man. It's not the number of a barcode. It has to do with a man. And his number is 603 score and 6. So we now know it's the number of the beast, but it is also the number of a man. Now, where do we hear this word man in the Bible? Doesn't Paul speak about the man of sin? 
and all the attributes that are associated with him. And he has a kingdom which is called a beast and it has a number. So it is the number of the Roman system under the leadership of one man. And of course this is a continuous kingdom so it's not one particular leader or pope that is mentioned here, but the principle of all power resting in one man. And if they all speak ex cathedra infallibly, then one cannot change a precept of a previous one without denying infallibility. So it is a system that is con has a continuity that cannot be changed. So it's almost like the Medo-Persian system because what went out of the mouth of the king could not be changed. And here you have exactly that same system. What comes out of the mouth cannot be changed. So the system has a man whom Paul termed the man of sin who sits in the temple of God pretending that he is God and having authority over God's people. And then he has a number. Now the magazine Our Sunday Visitor, which is a Jesuit magazine, it's a publishing house now, it's grown since the time that this was written. And we asked the Jesuits here, what are the letters inscribed on the Pope's crown and what do they signify, if anything? The letters inscribed on the Pope's mitre are these, Vicarius Filii Dei, which is the Latin for the Vicar of the Son of God. Now some claim that this was uh, a mistake. But two years later, they published it again with the same explanation. I'm sure the Jesuits would know what is on the Pope's mitres, even if those mitres are under lock and key today for obvious reasons. So this comes from their mouth and was repeated twice. Vicarius Filii Dei, which is Latin for the Vicar of the Son of God which literally means in the place of the Son of God, which literally means Antichrist. <laughs> so basically, what's standing on the mitre is Antichrist, Vicarius Filii Dei, and the Latin letters have numeric value, and if you add them all up, then you will find that they come to 666. But it's not only the number of his name, his title, it's also the number of the beast. So if you use different languages, if you use the Greek, for example, then the official designations for this kingdom are the Latin kingdom, which in the Greek is Helatina Basileia, and that works out to 666 because the Greek letters also have numerical value, and don't confuse an E value 8 with an E, value 5, because the one has a little line on it which gives it a different value. And then the Italian church, official title, Italica Ecclesia, and the Latin-speaking man, the title for the papacy in the Greek is Latinos 666. They all work up to 666. So this beast power, the beast itself, the kingdom, has a number, 666, and the name of the man has a number, which is 666. Now it is beyond pure chance that you could have all of these together. So what is the mark of the beast? The only way we can find out what is the mark of the beast is to ask the beast.
excuse me, beast, do you have a mark? And the Pope answers, the Pope has power to change times, to abrogate laws, and to dispense with all things, even the precepts of Christ. So he says that he stands above the Bible, he can change it. But the Bible says Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. So obviously this is presumption to say that he has power to change the precepts of Christ. So what did his mark? Of course the Catholic Church claims that the change, changing the Sabbath to the Sunday, was her act, and the act is a mark of her ecclesiastical power and authority in religious matters. Okay, is there another quote? Yes, Catholic record. Sunday is our mark of authority. The church is above the Bible and this transference of Sabbath observant is proof of that fact. Obviously, Jesus in Matthew 5, from verse 17 onwards, says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. And then he goes on to say, Not one jot or one tittle will by any means disappear from the law until all things have been accomplished. Till heaven and earth disappear, not one jot or one tittle will pass from the law. But here they claim that they've changed the law of God and they make it a mark of their authority. So this must be the mark of the beast. That's why in 2003, as a result of a document which was written when uh, the Sabbath Sunday issue became prominent in the United States in 1888, Rome answered, Most Christians assume that Sunday is the biblically approved day of worship. The Roman Catholic Church protests that it transferred Christian worship from the biblical Sabbath Saturday to Sunday and that to try to argue that the change was made in the Bible is both dishonest and a denial of Catholic authority. So the issue is not the day, the issue is authority. If Protestantism wants to base its teachings on the Bible, it should worship on Saturday. Okay. So now Rome has told us what its mark is. Now is it possible that the United States could become involved in propagating Sunday as a day of universal rest? And if so, for what purpose? Well, let's have a look at it. Battlefield, United States. Americans face arrest as war criminals under army state law. And Luke says that men's hearts will be failing them for fear and looking for those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. If there is enough turmoil, political and religious, upon this earth so that men's hearts are failing them for fear, would legislation be introduced to ensure the so-called safety of the people? And this legislation, of course, would be contrary to the American Constitution, which admits to freedom of conscience. Senate approves indefinite detention and torture of Americans. Is that a possibility? It would force everyone to accept the mark of the beast, and if you didn't accept it, you would be killed. Now here already, there are laws 
which approve indefinite detention and torture. The terrifying legislation that allows for Americans to be arrested, detained indefinitely, tortured and interrogated without charge or trial passed through the Senate on Thursday with an overwhelming support from 93% of lawmakers. Only seven members of the U.S. Senate voted against the National Defense Authorization Act. This is very interesting. Is it beginning to speak like a dragon? Did Obama sign a martial law executive order? As folks headed out to happy hour last Friday evening, President Obama signed an executive order that could potentially give him the power to institute martial law in the United States in times of peace or during a national threat in times of peace or a national threat? What if you have both? Does the United States already spy on its citizens and even on its allies, let alone its enemies? The answer is yes. Verizon forced to hand over telephone data, full court ruling. The people are being spied on. They have organizations such as Echelon where they listen in to all the conversations, computers, monitoring keywords, and nobody is exempt. Question, did the United States officially hack even their closest ally, Angela Merkel, yes or no? Yes. And when the Germans found it out, they were extremely upset. And what happened? Did the United States apologize for hacking into the system? No, they told them to pipe down since it was their right to do so. And what did the German parliament say as a consequence? Okay. They backed down. So if even that level is hacked, how much more so everyone else? The Huffington Post, which was a satirical uh, little joke on this issue, made quite an interesting little picture. They took George Bush with his warmongering attitude and uh, Obama with his headphones on listening to the conversations and they melted them into one calling him George W. Obama. I thought they did rather a good job. <laughs> so as you are, so you speak. Is there an organization in the United States of America that is asking for Sunday legislation? And the answer is yes, the Lord's Day Alliance. The Lord's Day Alliance of the United States exists to encourage Christians to reclaim the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, as a day of spiritual and personal renewal, enabling them to impact their communities with the gospel. And in challenging and economic times, like the world faces in 2009 already, they said it, the world's Lord's Day Alliance is seeking to uncover scriptural truths regarding how the Ten Commandments combined with Jesus' teaching about money can provide guidance for Christians in daily living. Now this is an interesting statement because what is being joined with what here? Christianity and the economy. Now if I look at the mark of the beast, then it's fascinating because the mark of the beast will be implemented by buying and selling. 
that no one should be able to buy or sell. And then eventually, if you don't worship the image of the beast and the beast, then you will be killed, according to the scripture. So the economy is being dragged into this. This is fascinating. In 2001, when we had the debacle with the Twin Towers in New York, they say the World Alliance, the Lord's Day Alliance, sent out a newsletter. We are keenly aware that we, should not, that we could not do our work without financial support of friends like you. And then they say, at the time, the same time, the national tragedy that occurred on September 11 in New York, Washington, and Pennsylvania has changed our perspective and frankly has caused even those who lack a spiritual thermometer to consider their faith, many of them for the first time in their life. We stand on the verge of an unprecedented opportunity to proclaim the message of the Christian Sunday in a manner not seen in the lifetime of this man. So the Lord's Day Alliance put out just recently a document where they claimed Sunday as a mark. Isn't that an interesting terminology? Of Christian unity. And this was the Reverend Dimitrios Tonias, Sunday as a mark of Christian unity. So this is what will unite Christians throughout the world and also economic advantages. Now we'll see how they put this together because it's brilliant. The EU must keep Sunday, says the Catholic Church. And then in Brussels, in February 16, 2009, the Secretariat of the Commission of the Bishops' Conference of the European Community has welcomed the proposed EU law that would safeguard Sunday as a day of rest from work. So the Bishops' Conference, which is the Christian denominations together, went to the European Parliament and said, excuse me, we want Sunday laws. They were very excited that this was going to happen. But the European Parliament refused and threw it out. So it failed. Did they then capitulate? The argument that the Europeans had, it makes no difference. Whether you rest on a Monday, a Tuesday, a Wednesday, a Thursday, a Saturday or a Sunday, as long as you have a day of rest. It doesn't matter which day you rest. But then, just a few months later, Germany decides they're going to go it alone. So the court rules that German shops must close on Sunday. Hmm. And so all the shops had to close. The court's president said, we will close on Sunday. So now there are stringent Sunday laws in Germany since 2009. And companies that refuse to obey were fined exorbitant amounts of money. Unbelievable. And so, Germany sets an example for Europe. Spiegel Online, which is the equivalent of Time magazine in Europe, said most German newspapers on Wednesday greet the ruling. Some for reasons of religion and tradition, others out of concern for workers' rights. I found this fascinating. 
So there were two categories. Now, a few years ago, everybody would have said, crazy, there will never be a Sunday law, never will there be closing on Sundays, because this is a secular nation. Who cares whether we're open on a Sunday or not? But now, everybody agreed that this was a good idea. And there were two groups. The one group said, this is wonderful for religious reasons. And the other group said, this is wonderful for economic rest region, reasons. Question. Who receives the mark where in this scenario? The one who has the religious reason is convinced that the theology of Christianity, which is the theology of the beast, is correct. And they will receive it in their forehead because they think like that. The other group couldn't care two hoots about religion, they're secular, but they are happy that they're getting a worker's day of rest. So where do they get it? On the hand. Because this stands for your work and this stands for your thinking. So now there are two reasons why the mark will be kept. And the interesting reason is that it now cuts across all denominations. Because those who receive it in their forehead and do it for religious reasons are happy, and those who receive it for economic reasons, whether they be Buddhists or Hindus or Muslims or Christians, whatever, they receive it on the hand. But either way, if you obey this precept, contrary to God's explicit command, then you run into conflict with God's word. And then the labor unions joined the churches in their campaign to ring fence Sunday as a day off for the nation. So first it was the churches that went to the European Parliament, and the European Parliament said, no, it doesn't matter what day you rest. So now there was an alliance between the trade unions, who represent the workers' rights, and the churches, and they went back. But they had another alliance as well. Krisengipfel im Kanzleramt, das Sonntagsgegaka. Very interesting. There was a crisis, a financial crisis in Europe in 2009, as everyone knows. And uh, Angela Merkel and her top aides were preparing discussion documents for Parliament, and the only day they had was Sunday. So she got the small group together to discuss the issue as to what they would discuss in Parliament on the Monday. And uh, there was consternation in the religious world as a consequence. So the Reinhard Marx, who is the Archbishop of München, and by the way, Cardinal Ratzinger, who became Pope Benedict, had that position as well. So it's a very high position. He said the following. I'll read it in German and then translate it. He said, Politiker sollten ein Zeichen setzen und sonntags keine Arbeitssitzungen abhalten, forderte der Oberhirte grollend die Sonntagsruhe ein. Politicians should set a mark. Because in German, the mark of the beast is das Malzeichen des Tieres. Mark. 
So politicians should set a mark and should not work on Sundays, but should rest on that day. So the church is becoming prescriptive in Europe. This is a picture of Reinhard Marx, and I, I was naughty, so I couldn't resist it, because he was wearing purple and hurry, hug, hugging someone in crimson, and the book of Revelation chapter 17 says the woman, the church, was arrayed in purple and scarlet colored and decked with gold and precious stones, etc., etc. But in her hand was a golden cup full of the abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Now that's harsh language, but what it means in biblical terms is that she is apostatizing against God's word. It's apostasy. And uh, in her cup is a doctrine, a wine, which is contrary to the doctrine of the Bible. So here they were propagating a doctrine which is theirs, which they call the mark of the beast, and it's contrary to the Bible, which says the seventh day. Then there was mobilization for the protection of Sunday in Europe. And they went again to the European Parliament, this time fortified with the labor unions and the civil societies, and said, we want Sunday legislation. Now the Parliament had already said no, but I mean, here was a big force to deal with. And they had some arguments. Protection of a work-free Sunday. That was a year later, in 2010. So the parliament backed off a little bit because it was now the churches. These are the alliances of the churches that took place, the civil societies, and the trade unions. So it was not just a religious affair. And their argument was rather brilliant. The European parliament said, uh, we want the citizens to acknowledge your request. So we want a European initiative campaign for the work-free Sunday. This is Zenit. This is the Catholic newspaper. We need one million citizens to request a day for children. Ha! Huh. So now it become a family affair. Why a day for children? And then they started an advertising campaign. Sundays, daddy and mommy belong to us. Now, the reason for this argument is rather clever. The parliament had said it doesn't matter what day you rest as long as everybody gets a day of rest. But the school children are occupied for six days with school affairs and sporting affairs for school events. So the only day of the week when the whole family can be together is Sunday. And they argued the following way. They said, if, particularly the civil organization said, if you break up the family by giving the parents a day of rest on Wednesday, that means the children are alone at home on Sunday. And what do kids do when they are alone? They go walking on their streets, they're with their friends, they start taking drugs, and the family unit, unit crashes. So, if you don't give Sunday then you are against family unity. And so the children says, Sunday, daddy and mommy belong to us. Hands off, European Parliament. You have no right not to legislate Sunday. 
and Radio Vatican broadcast EU Initiative for a Free Sunday and they praise Thomas Mann and the other politicians that are propagating for Sunday. So is there a movement in Europe which is the traditional basis of the first piece for Sunday legislation? Yes, it has not yet passed, but the pressure is mounting. So they organized the organization called the European Sunday Alliance, which says we need to protect your health, we need to protect our families, private life, and we need to live together, so we need Sunday. And another initiative was the Thousand Tables for Sunday in Europe. So the Ecumenical Council of the Protestant Churches put out tables and made the citizens sign that they want to keep Sunday. And it's very interesting, they asked the question, are you still shopping or are you celebrating already? In other words, celebrating Sunday rest. And then interestingly, they have this little caption here, which says, on the 3rd of July in the year 321, 1,690 years ago, a decree went into effect by the Emperor Constantine that Sunday should be a rest day. Therefore, on the same day, the 3rd of July, which was now in 2011, we are going to see to it that it stays that way. So they chose that date and they said, now we want Sunday. So they put out the tables and as the people come out of the stores, they gather them and discuss the Sunday issue and make them sign. So there's a mega movement. And the Catholic news media says, Vatican official exhorts Catholics to set aside Sunday as a day of rest. Now, in Germany, Sunday law was instituted as an example to the entire Europe and the pressure on the European Parliament is enormous. Now would the same happen on the other side of the ocean where an image was being developed? Well, the answer is yes. There's no Sunday legislation as yet in the United States, so the state of North Dakota introduced a Sunday law. And there was a huge hue and cry, and they said, this is unconstitutional. You cannot have a Sunday law, because church and state are supposed to be separate. And so the North Dakota Catholic Conference has responded to the criticism of a law restricting Sunday hours for business, saying the regulation benefits the whole of society. The purpose of the North Dakota Sunday closing law is not to impose times of worship, nor is it to demand adherence to religious doctrine. The purpose of the law is to preserve the common good by ensuring that society is not overtaken by work and profit. Very clever. Is the law being introduced economically, yes or no? Is buying and selling an issue? Yes. Now, I don't know whether this is true, but EWTN News said Sunday church-going makes women happier than shopping. I would like to do a survey to see whether that is so. <laughs> I doubt it very, very much. And then another initiative was launched, which is called 7A. I think they have their numbers wrong. It should be 1A because Sunday is the first day of the week. 
and it says an alliance for a free Sunday, and they have all these little egg cup holders, and they say, without Sunday, something is missing. So you can only really be fulfilled if you keep Sunday. So this is the argument that's going on in the world, and the politicians were seen signing the documents asking the European Parliament for Sunday legislation. Now some people argue, but what about the Jews? They all keep Sabbath. Surely they won't introduce Sunday. So here's an interesting move. Pope Benedict exonerated the Jews for the death of Jesus Christ. And Netanyahu went to thank the Pope for the Jewish exoneration. The Pope claimed the Jews were not responsible. After all, it was the Romans who crucified him and not the Jews, so the Jews are forgiven. That was very kind of the Pope, but the Bible says otherwise. The Bible says it was the Jews that asked for the crucifixion, and therefore they claimed his blood be upon our head and upon our descendants. That's what they said. So now, what could possibly be the response? Closer ties with Rome? And the very next move, according to the Financial Express, is Israel looks to making Sunday day of rest to boost the markets. And immediately they started easing their Sabbath restrictions on transport and all these other issues, bringing the nation in line with this initiative. Now, we have a new election coming up soon, and one of the candidates is again Rick Santorum, and Rick Santorum, uh, many sources say he is an Opus Dei member, which he denies. Santorum has said he is not a member of Opus Dei, just an admirer. But he has numerous connections to the group. In 2002, he traveled to Rome with high-profile American members for the 100th birthday of Opus Dei's founder, Josa Maria Escriva. And some sources say he and his wife have been initiated. The five-day event is where Santorum first criticized J.F. Kennedy's separation of church and state speech. And in the last election, they had this little joke in the Los Angeles time. Rick Santorum slams JFK, emulates Pat Robertson, and says, and he's the newest member of our TV ministries, same-sex marriage, abortion, the pill, atheists, and all of these issues. It's interesting, because morality is a big issue today. And I think the time is coming when the public will say, the church has to act, and government must act in unison with the church. Then we'll have an image of the beast. And what if we get some other legislation in the deal? which honors the first beast. What then? What did JFK say that was so obnoxious to Rick Santorum, a current running presidential candidate, who said that the speech of JFK made him want to throw up his words? JFK said, I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute where no Catholic prelate will tell the president, should he be Catholic, how to act, and no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote, where no church or church school is granted any public funds or political preference, 
and where no man is denied public office merely because his religion differs from the president, who might appoint him or the people who might elect him. I believe in an America that is officially neither Catholic, Protestant, nor Jewish, where no public official either requests or accepts instructions on public policy from the Pope, the National Council of Churches, or any other ecclesiastical source, where no religious body seeks to impose its will directly or indirectly upon the general populace or the public acts of its officials, and where religious liberty is so indivisible that an act against one church is treated as an act against all. His words weren't even cold when the man was dead. This is a very interesting speech. And a current running presidential candidate says, the speech makes him want to throw up. So have we moved from separation of church and state to a new ideology of union of church and state? Obviously we have. So we've moved from lamb-like principles to dragon principles. Pope calls for a new world order. Obama calls for a new world order. This was Obama's official webpage. He didn't write it, but nevertheless it appeared on his webpage. And they must have left it there. Surely they vet what goes on there. And uh, he says, you know, there have been some changes in the last hundred years. So this person who wrote this said, perhaps we should consider enacting a Sunday law not to restrict people from working, but to give liberty to those who can't choose. Catholic Church and trade unions form holy alliance to enforce Sunday observance. Eurozone demands six-day week for Greece. This is brilliant. Greece needs bailout money. And in order to receive the bailout money, they have to submit to certain economic reforms. Now, what does this entail? Well, they negotiate it. They're fighting about it still. Eurozone demands six-day week for Greece. Terms for the second bailout may include labor market reforms for minimum wages. Interesting. The Troika of banks, the European Central Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the European Commission are putting pressure now, it's interesting that none of these banks need to be audited. Fascinating. They have full control. And here are the working arrangements over time. The maximum weekly working time of employed persons cannot exceed more than 48 hours. If you divide that by eight hours a day, then that works out to six days. On average... The minimum rest time in any 24-hour period cannot be less than 12 continuous hours. And employees are entitled to a minimum continuous period of rest of at least 24 hours per week, including Sundays. Well, now you're between a rock and a hard place. Because if you have to work a certain number of hours, you cannot work them in, because you may not work more than a certain number of hours in a day. And you must have a continuous 24-hour rest period, which must include Sunday, which means the only day that you can have rest, according to this law, is Sunday. So now what if Greece says, I, I won't do it? What if someone comes and says, uh, can I work 
the hours in because I want to keep Sabbath. Oh, the law does not allow you to keep Sabbath, you see, because you may only work so many hours in a day, so you cannot work in the Sunday. Well, can I work more than No, you can't, you can't. But can you make an exception in, for me? I'll work extra hard after hours by myself, even for no pay. Sorry, the law does not permit us. Uh, this is a big problem. And what if you go and do it anyway? Well, then the government could lose its funding if it doesn't enforce this. So this is how it will be introduced. Holy Alliance in Italy protests against working on Sundays. So they start rioting in the streets. Pope Francis laments working on Sundays. Never on Sundays, Pope Francis says. Working on Sunday has a negative effect on families. Sundays, Daddy and Mommy belong to us. There is no doubt that this is the very motive of the movement, and it is to introduce a grassroots movement to bring Sunday legislation to the forefront. The Bible says in Revelation 12, verse 17, And the dragon was wroth with the woman, the church, and went to wake war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. So there will be a conflict between those who want to keep the God's commandments, including the seventh-day Sabbath, and those who will go along with the popular movement, either for religious reasons or for economic reasons, forehead or hand, to introduce Sunday. If you capitulate, if you refuse to bow down to this law, which is for the sake of humanity, humanity is overtaxed, it needs rest, the families are falling apart, people have to come together again. You will be the pariah. You will be the new ISIS. Even though it is an ideological ISIS, and not a sword, Isis, except the sword of the Spirit. And the papacy has already opined and said that if you criticize it, it is terrorism. And even if you are not, if you are not violent, if you are fundamental in your thinking and you want to take the Bible literally, then you are an enemy. So it is quite obvious that this legislation is not only possible, it's probable. Know ye not that to whom you yield yourself servants to obey, his servants you are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness? So here's the choice. If you choose to obey God, then you are obedient to God and you're showing homage to God and you're worshipping him. If you choose to obey the decrees of the beast, and the image of the beast, then you pay homage to the beast and to the image of the beast. And so you either receive the mark of the beast or you receive the seal of God. One of the two. And that is the choice that everyone will face in the very near future. The writing is on the wall. And we will see how it unfolds in the next lectures when we'll look at greater detail about the fire that comes down from heaven and how it affects the thinking of the people, and then we will see how this kingdom is to be set up 
We are living in phenomenal times and we should take note of these prophecies. Protestants used to believe it and Protestants today, if they want to believe the Bible, should go back to their roots. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are living in very serious times and soon the mark of the beast will be implemented on a universal scale. And we will have to make a choice to pay homage to you or to the system. Help us to make righteous choices because it's not just an issue of a day, it's a question of authority. Whose authority do we acknowledge? The biblical one or the traditional one? Help us to this effect in Jesus' name. Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.